And so grace for here is grace for me. And um, I pray we can walk away really with the sense of what you are trying to communicate to our hearts um, through your word. And um, we can all walk away with a, with a higher view of your son, Jesus. So thank you so much uh, for speaking to us, um, not leaving us in the dark. Um, you've revealed yourself through your word. So we're thankful for that. Um, so help us as we give ourselves to it in Jesus name. Amen. So, so it's Mother's Day and you have to laugh at the, uh, the topic and the passage that we're, we're, uh, we're addressing today. See, we started the first Peter series a while back and we go, if you're new to Bethel, what we do is we pick a book, pick a book of the Bible and we just pretty much go through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph. And we kind of look at context. We just kind of go from a beginning to the ending of a letter. And so here we are on Mother's Day and we give ourselves to this idea of authority and submission in the home and the submission of wives to their husbands. Now, you need to know that we didn't sit around in a big like room like staff meeting, right? So we got like Mother's Day is coming up. Like, what should we talk about? And like, you might picture me like raising my hand, like, I know, let's talk about wives submitting to husbands, even deadbeat ones on Mother's Day. Um, so that didn't happen. It just kind of happened to kind of coincide for us to talk about this idea of roles in marriage and the role of a wife in a home, even in a home when she has a believing, believing wife has an unbelieving husband. But it is this issue that we give ourselves to an issue of authority and submission. So I think it's safe to say that we live in a day where authority and submission are viewed with much suspicion. Would you guys agree with that? Authority and submission are viewed with a, a little bit of disdain, a little bit of pushback. We have an aversion to that and we're suspicious to leadership and authority. And I think the fact that we even cringe when the subject is brought up shows that culturally authority and submission is taboo. Uh, it's broadly maligned. And even in the church, it's biblically misunderstood, specifically in this issue of, of marriage. Husbands who lead and wives who are helpers who follow and who submit and defer to their husband's authority and leadership. Um, and so we've been talking about leadership and authority and submission in a variety of ways. Um, so far in the context, we've talked about authority and submission in terms of a government, even an ungodly, unjust government like the government that, that these folks here in First Peter found themselves needing to submit to and doing good and honoring. We even saw it in the workplace um, where we all of us have jobs and we have bosses and, and we have need in those places of work to work hard and to submit to the authority um, there. And now we give our, our attention to this idea of authority and submission in the context of marriage. So what I want to do today is I want to elevate our view of submission, okay? I want to elevate our, our understanding of, of what authority is and this idea particularly of submission and to do that, we're going to look to Jesus. So follow along with me as I read 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2. It says this, likewise, likewise, wives. Now we head into another arena of authority and submission. Likewise, wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Be deferring, follow their lead. So that even if some do not obey the word, even if some don't know Jesus, even if some don't care to even know him, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. <clears throat> so here we see that uh, we are going to be just looking at the first couple verses here. And uh, then we're going to pick up um, the rest of, uh, of this next week. Uh, but we see here that uh, Peter gets to this issue of likewise wives be subject to your own husband. So let's remember the context. Peter is passionate about mission. 
Peter's passionate about the gospel spreading, about the lordship of Jesus and the kingdom of God spreading to the ends of the earth. And he's been already telling these believers that he's writing to, they got plucked up out of the place that was home to them and in a political tactic of Rome in what, what, what's called assimilation, um, they, as Rome conquered a new land, they took people who were familiar with Greco-Roman culture and they brought them into the new land that they dominated so that this new land can get assimilated into Greco-Roman culture. It's called colonization. And so some among that number, they weren't even asked or anything. They were just said, you, 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 and you. You're all coming out and you're moving over here. We've just dominated a new land by war. And we're going to go assimilate this new culture into Greco-Roman culture. And so some of the ones that got picked to go over there were part of the church of Jesus. And Peter knew them. And so Peter, with a heart for his brothers and sisters who are in an unfamiliar land, an unfamiliar day, he writes to them, the pastor, and shepherd them. And now we get to this issue of husbands and wives. And so Peter's been passionate and he's been really very clear to explain why they're there. Why are you here? Why are you in this world? Church, why are you here? And he gives them new identities in Christ. One, he says, you guys are to be set apart like a holy nation. You're to be distinct. You're to be different. You have a new Lord, a new savior, a new king, a new allegiance to God as king. And in a godless world, a place that worships Caesar as Lord and a variety of pantheon of gods, that's going to make a difference in your life. And so this, this allegiance you have to Jesus, right, that ought to lead you to say no to some things and say yes to some things, to hate the things that God hates and to love the things that God loves. And a lot of times that's going to be in clash, right? That's going to be in contradiction to the broader culture who doesn't know Jesus, who doesn't submit to God as king. So they're to be a holy nation. But they're not to be like huddled in and around just themselves with people who think like them and act like them and believe like them. They're also to be a a royal priesthood, which is this Bible talk for in the fabric of the world, in relationships with those who don't believe like them, look like them, act like them, and make decisions like they do or love the things that they do. We're to be a holy nation. We're to be distinct and set apart. But we're all to be also to be a royal priesthood in relationships with those who don't know God. Let's be rooted deeply in the fabric of this world, but live like people who have an allegiance to a different kingdom. And Peter is huge, hear me, Peter is huge on letting our good deeds, like letting our lifestyle, our conduct, the way we kind of conduct ourselves in this world to be part of the missional equation of people coming to see that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is King and he's lived and died and rose for them. He's huge on that. He's huge on whether it's an ungodly government, whether it's a place of business, whether it's in, in a marriage in this world, we're to be servants, we're to, we're to keep our, our behavior, our good conduct, let that shine before men. And that might pique their interest to ask some questions and maybe even think in their heads, maybe there is something to this God that they worship. Maybe there is something to this Jesus who they say has rose again. We're reminded of 1 Peter 2.12, which says this, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, among the nations, among those who don't know Jesus as Lord, honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, when they're throwing stones and they have negative and nasty things to say about you, they may see your good deeds. They may see the way you live your life. And maybe some of them, because of that, will glorify God on the day of visitation. That's the hope is that we want to see people move from not knowing Jesus as as king and as savior 
They know him as judge. The wrath of God is hanging over their heads. They're separated from him. We want them to move to a place of unbelief to faith where they can know God as king and savior, a savior of grace and a king of mercy. So Peter really wants us to be servants. And he wants us to use our newfound freedom that we have in Jesus to serve those around us. Instead of being free how we interpret freedom in our day, which is free to just kind of live how we want, free to just kind of live life on my own terms, rather the freedom that the Bible talks about is I'm now free from sin and death. I've been released by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now I'm free to give my life away in service for those around me. I'm free to literally serve and love and do good to those around me, even those who maybe in the world's eyes wouldn't deserve it. So, uh, now we bring our issue to th- that, that idea, that missional issue, keep your good deeds, your conduct, also submission and authority now into this topic of, of marriage. So let's just, let's just say this culturally. In, in the day that Peter's writing, in the first century, uh, it was a hierarchical culture. It was a male-dominated culture, even more so than our culture is today. And so for a wife to have a different religion than her husband, that was unheard of in the first century. It didn't matter what your husband believed or followed after, what God, what king, whatever. The wife was supposed to follow in that. Now, in a Greco-Roman culture, hugely polytheistic, multiple gods. Well, we know that really those gods are no gods at all. There's only one God, and there's only one Savior that God has sent to the world. That's Jesus. And so what was happening is, was the gospel was spreading, okay? Even as colonization was taking place and people were going to spread in the gospel, all of a sudden, God started opening up people's eyes to see the light of the gospel, You see, the truth of a sent savior, one who lives, dies, and rises again for scoundrels, for rebels, for sinners like me and like you. And in some marriages, it seems like Peter's issue is mostly wives whose eyes have been opened to the truth of the gospel while their husbands still stay unbelieving. You have to realize that any wife who would have diverted from following the God that her husband followed already would have been considered culturally a rebel. This is unheard of. This is completely countercultural. It's disrespectful. It's, it, it goes against the grain and the norms of the day that a wife would have a different religion, a different allegiance, and a different God than her husband. So already these believing wives, they would have had a ton of pressure to abandon the gospel. What are you doing? What do you mean you believe in Jesus as Lord and you're not following your husband's religion? They would have been seen as just... Women who don't want to submit, they don't care about their husbands, they don't respect them. This would have been seen as very, very disrespectful. And so Peter wants the wives to counter that perception by affirming with their attitudes and their actions that they willingly accept the leadership of their husbands and they respect him. Now, it's easy for us to say, okay, so that's what's going on in that day. So you had this cultural expectation that wives were supposed to go along with what the husbands believe. And so Peter's instruction really is just kind of like culturally conditioned. We really don't have that taboo in our day. People are more free to believe however they want to. So it's not odd that a wife would believe different than a husband or husband believe different than a wife. Okay, so since that's the issue, then that's why we see wives need to submit just because they're trying to balance out a cultural expectation and a misunderstanding of their hearts towards their husbands. Yes, that is true, but we need to see that authority and submission go beyond that, much deeper than that. Beyond cultural perception, we have God's ordained function for husbands and wives. And what I want to do is I want to give you a brief theology 
of submission and authority. I don't want this to sound like a seminary class. I just want to give you guys a brief theology of submission and authority. So some think that issues of submission and authority only exist because of the fall, meaning because sins entered into the world. That's the only reason why we have people who are up here and down here. And here's this authority and here's this submission, meaning this in a perfect sinless situation, you wouldn't have the need for any type of leadership, any type of following or any type of deferring. The problem with that assertion is that authority and submission have existed in God himself in eternity past way before he created a world and way before sin entered into the world. Let me briefly explain to you the relationships of the Godhead, or as we call it around here, the Trinity. So the the doctrine of the Trinity is basically this, that in the Bible, when we first start out, we see that there's one God, there's one God, right? But as the Bible unfolds, we come to see that this one God who's one in essence is actually three in persons. It's not a contradiction. God is one in essence and three in persons. And we come to find out that God is father, son, and spirit. And that in eternity past, all these relationships existed. So when God created the world, he didn't create the world because he was the proverbial lone child who's kicking dust up in the empty lot across the street with no one to play with and he needed something to do. That's not God. He was never a solitary being. He always existed in community. And so in the Father and the Son and the Spirit, there was all this exchange of mutual adoration and love and deferring and service. God existed as a community. He was relational, not solitary. And so what happens is God has a plan, right? God has a plan to create a world. He knew it would fall and rebel. And his whole plan since day one was to send about his son, Jesus, who would live, die, rise again to go rescue and renew this runaway planet and to win rebels and scoundrels hearts back to him and redeem people and bring them back into his family by faith in the person and finished work of Jesus. Now, when all this plan was going down for the son to come, Do you imagine that that conversation went something like this? Okay, Father, Son, Spirit. Father kind of like leads up the the discussion. All right, guys. So uh, we need someone to go to the cross. Uh, Short straws for who goes, right? The Father's like, right, pulls his first one, longest one. Yes, not me, right? Spirit's like medium one. The Son's like, oh, dude, really? Oh, I got the short straw, dude. Not good, right? Do you imagine it kind of going like that? No, not at all. In eternity past, God the Father had a plan to send his son to die for sinners. And in Hebrews, it says that the son joyfully went to the cross, enduring its shame. He went willfully. He went obediently. And so we see that the father has this authority and the son submits to the father. He submits to his plan. He submits to his will. He submits to his ordained way of doing things. And the son joyfully submits to that. So even before sin enters into the world, you have this idea of authority and submission and it exists in God himself. And so authority and submission aren't negative. They're not sinful. Because if you ascribe wickedness and sinfulness to authority and submission, just in general, I'm not saying that authority is not abused. And I'm certainly not saying that some submission isn't joyful and in a good culture. But I'm saying just in general, the idea is it can be done well because we see God do it well in eternity past. Furthermore, we see the spirit submits to both the father and the son. If you just do a little bit of a study on the spirit and granted, I'll tell you, like some people say, hey, we don't talk about the spirit enough. Yeah, I'll agree with that. But actually, that's kind of like the spirit likes it that way because the spirit doesn't want glory for himself. In fact, you'll notice when the spirit comes on the scene in Acts 2, saves 3,000 people in the first day. Who gets the glory? Jesus. 
And the Spirit is okay with forever playing this behind-the-roll scenes as the Father and the Son get glory for His powerful acts of service. So within the Godhead itself, within the relationships in, in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, we see this idea of authority and submission. Okay? So these are good things. And now, built into the fabric of the Imago Dei, or the image of God, or who we are created, we're created in God's image. So why does He create male and female? Because God's image can't be captured with a solitary male. God's image can't be captured with one person living in isolation. God's relational. And so in the beginning, he creates male and female, and he performs the first wedding ceremony. And built into that relationship, one, is the relational reflection of the Trinity, but also, two, this idea of authority and submission. And what's the purpose? It's for function. It's for function. Could you imagine the Trinity walking around like, nah, man, like paper, rock, scissors, best of 150. I don't know what they would do, right? Like arguing, trying to jockey for position. I don't want to go to the cross. How about you? Side conversations, back rooms, trying to kind of manipulate each other. There was none of that. None of that. There was authority from the Father and submission from both the Son and the Spirit. And so God is calling us, husbands, to lead in a submissive servant way like Jesus and like the Father do. And wives, he is calling you to submit, defer, and follow and nothing short that has existed in the Son and the Spirit in eternity past. So I want to encourage you with that. So that's the brief theology there. Now, let's get to the passage. 1 Peter 3, 1 starts with one word. It starts with this, likewise. Wives, I want you to circle that. Go, and, and two, husbands, go all the way down to verse 7. See where you're addressed. What's the very first word there? Likewise. Likewise, circle that, underline that, highlight that, put a big arrow there. The gospel and the power and the model and the means and the motivation to do this, to do what God is calling you to in 1 Peter 3, 1, all of it is found in that one little word, likewise. See, all too often we skim over the most important piece of this passage, which is that word, likewise. And we jump straight to the slightly heavy feeling task of defining wife submission, and all the implications for the life of a wife without any address or attention to Jesus or the gospel of grace whatsoever. And we rarely stop to consider the likewise in this passage. Likewise changes everything for you gals. It means in the same way or in the like manner. Now, when you see likewise, what we're doing is we think, okay, like what? Okay, like, like what? Well, we have to look back. So if it says likewise or therefore, then we have to go back and say, well, what was written before? Well, right before he says, likewise, wives, we have probably one of the most richest passages on the person and finished work of Jesus that we have in all the scriptures. Meaning this, that ladies, wives, God is rooting what he's calling you to in the beautiful work of the son of God. Likewise, let's read it again for a reminder. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was being um, accused, blasphemous things said about him. When he was being reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. When he was being beaten and pierced with nails and flogged and whipped, he didn't say things like this, just you wait. I'm going to get mine against you. He didn't do that. He didn't threaten. What did he do? What was going on in the psyche and the heart of Jesus? 
but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed for you were strained like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So here's this beautiful description of Christ. And the next word is this, likewise. Likewise, wives. Now please note that when Peter addresses husbands in verse seven, he begins with that same word, okay? Likewise, meaning this, just as much wives are called to servanthood in their submission, helping and following and deferring, so husbands too are called to servanthood in their leadership. Meaning just as wives' role is modeled after a suffering, submissive savior, so too husbands' roles are modeled after the same savior. So both are drawing from the same well. Both husbands and wives are drawing from the same well. Now, if you're a married man here today, and you think that the kind of leadership that the scriptures teach is you get to be the boss and you get to create a culture in your home that's my way or the highway, you're a fool. And I'd be glad to talk to you about that in the commons afterwards. You're a fool. If you think the kind of leadership is, I'm the boss, do what I say, and you're an, over, uh, you're an overbearing, abrasive, dominant person, and everyone fears you in your home, you're a fool. And I'll tell you to your face. That is not the leadership that the scriptures talk about. Okay? But husbands are next week. I don't get to do that sermon, which I'm really bummed about. <clears throat> we'll get to that later. But Peter has just described Jesus as a suffering servant who, by the way of trusting his heavenly father, he puts in check his words. He puts in check his actions during his injustice. And Jesus kept trusting his father to be the just judge to accomplish all of his good purposes and all the situations in his heart. And he handed over his circumstances to the father to be taken care of. Peter roots what he is calling wives to here in this robust Christology. And I will say this, that I think that we have done wives an injustice, that we have very plainly taught that a husband's role is to model the servant, robust, right, right, courageous leadership of Jesus. And we have, and we have said, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. But we have not said, wives, be submissive to your husbands as the son has been submissive to the will of the father. And we have not rooted your role in the gospel of grace. And we have not rooted your role in a powerful, beautiful son who gives the means and model and the motivation for what God has called you to do. And for that, I say sorry. And to husbands, we say, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, but why is he going to submit? Right? We just kind of like say it and then we like move on. Like, oh, like let's not touch that. But here's what I want to say to you. If you're here and you view submission with a lowly lens, you have to view the cross and the son who was nailed to it with a lowly lens. If you, see, if you view submission with a lowly lens, then that means you view the son as he's on a cross submitting to the father's will with a lowly lens. See, you have a dilemma if you spurn the idea of submission, but then raise your voice in worship to a submissive savior who served you in your sin. See, we love the son. And for those of us whose eyes have been open to the work of Jesus, we love the Son. We love to worship Him. We love to, we love to speak of Him. We love to give glory to Him. And we love all the benefits from His life, death, and resurrection. But we need to see that we have those because the Son was submissive to the will of the Father. So you can't on one hand rejoice in the gospel. You can't on one hand rejoice in a Son who lived and died and rose for you and then have disdain in your hearts for this idea of submission. 
For it is your own reconciliation and welcome into the family of God as adopted children, adopted sons and daughters that came by way of submission of the son to the father's will. Do you see what I'm saying here? If your eyes have been opened to the gospel, you should not have a lowly view of submission. You should have a robust, beautiful, magnificent view of submitting and deferring to someone else's leadership. And as we look to Christ, we see this kind of view. Let me first say this, that if Jesus doesn't submit to the will and plan of God, there is no cross and there is no forgiveness of sins. If there is no submission, there is no forgiveness of sins and no reconciliation. The story of the gospel is of a submissive savior, a savior who submits to a father's plan to rescue and renew a runaway planet. See, who Jesus is and what he has done paves the way for women to be wives. The gospel brings shape to the role. Oftentimes, wives look to the Proverbs 31 woman, right, for their template of female godliness. And wives are tempted to think this, well, she was the wife who did it all, so I need to be like that. And sometimes we look to the Proverbs 31 woman and we forget to mention Christ. And your role is modeled after him and in a beautiful way. Peter tells, Peter puts Jesus in front of wives and tells them to do likewise. Just like this, ladies. We need to see here that Peter puts Jesus in front of wives to be the means, the model, and the motivation. So wives, for you, for you in your quiet submissiveness, you're deferring to your husband's leadership, even a husband who doesn't know Jesus and is a fool, as you're quiet, as you ditch your nagging, as you ditch your incessant complaining to bring about your own means to what you want, as you follow his leadership, right? And as you submit to that and as you defer to that, right? And as you trust God to accomplish his will in your, in your husband's life and heart and also in your, in your home, when you do that, Jesus is your means, he is your model, and he is your motivation, Okay, he's your means, meaning this, Jesus is living his life through you. There is nothing in the scriptures that God has commanded us to do that you can do apart from the spirit of Jesus indwelling you. John 15, Jesus said this, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing, literally nothing. Anytime you obey a verse, do something that's honorable or noble, you know what that is? That's the spirit of Jesus bearing fruit in your dead carcass. That's what that is. You're bearing fruit by the spirit to do what God has called you to do. And you specifically wives, you don't have that existing in your own goodness. The scripture is pretty clear that we're not good. We need to be rescued, saved, regenerated, and indwelt by the spirit and to bear fruit by his powerful work. And as we do that, as we live those things out, the life of Jesus is being lived in us. I don't have the ability to do good. I need to borrow from God. I need to borrow from the gospel. I need to borrow from Jesus who lives his life through me. So the means is this. The fact that you would not go off on your husband, the fact that you would not just berate a fool, the fact that you would not just just come out and just go off and be manipulative and nag and push and and try to fight for your will to be done in your marriage. The fact that you would stop talking like Jesus stopped talking when he was being reviled and that you would quietly in your heart with strength and with faith trust that God would take care of this thing. That is of the spirit. That is of Jesus. And you do not have the ability to do that in and of your own flesh. 
So Jesus is the means. He has lived, died, and rose again, and he ascended. And Jesus said, if I don't leave, I can't send the Spirit. He is the helper. He is the comforter. And he is the helper for us to live the life that God has called us to live. So he's your means, ladies. He's also your model. Remember last week, Steve got the, had the letters up here? He said, like, kindergarten, we kind of traced the, the letters, right? We traced the F, right? We traced the, all, all those things. Same thing here. He's the model. Jesus is the model. Jesus provides the template. <clears throat> and Jesus is also the motivation. He's also the motivation. Wives, God has called you to a difficult task. I was even reading this passage, and I was just like, man, <clears throat> in, in, in marriage, wives are called to this, but also I think in life in general, in the Proverbs, it talks a ton, like for us to not use, like, be so boisterous with our words and to shut up and stop and be people who listen. Isn't that hard? Anybody in here have a hard time not running their mouth? Yeah, yeah, I do. And it's not just wives, right? Like me all the time. I'm always like going way across the line. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm always just real, like just like, like out there and aggressive, saying things I shouldn't, not being prudent, not being wise, not being respectful. I cross the line often with my words. I'm passionate. I'm Italian. I'm throwing my arms around, Right? And to do anything where you just kind of just stop and you stop trying to bring about your own ends through your own words and trying to bring about what you want and what you desire and to stop and trust God to do his work, that's hard. That is massively hard. And yet, wives, the way God has ordained marriage and the way he's designed it, he has placed the mantle of leadership on husbands and he has placed the mantle of helper and follower on wives that they defer to their husband's leadership. And Peter's saying that sometimes you need to do this without words. You don't win him with words. So he's the motivation. So wives, I want to tell you, when it gets hard, when it gets difficult, I want you to open up 1 Peter 2, and I want you to remind yourself of the Savior who, when he was suffered, he didn't threaten. When he was reviled, he didn't revile, but continued entrusting his soul to him who judges justly. And I want that to be your means your model, and your motivation to do the difficult task and the hard task of what he's called you to in your marriage. All right, so really, really quick. I want to tell you what submission does not mean, okay? What submission does not mean? And of course, I have more content that I can get through for the rest of here, but let's just, split, let's just run through these. Submission does not mean agreeing with everything your husband says or believes. The wife of First Peter believes Jesus is Lord and the husband doesn't. It doesn't mean you have to agree. It's not this, um, hey, babe, when I want your opinion, I'll give it to you, right? That's foolish and that's stupid. And if you're a wife and you think submission means that, you have misunderstood what the Bible is saying about submission. We're talking about a robust, faith-strengthening, Christ-modeled deferring in your role to a husband's leadership and a massive trust in God to bring about his will in your home and in your husband's life. That's what we're talking about. Submission does not mean agreeing with everything your husband says. The first Peter three wife does not agree with her husband in regards to Jesus. Submission does not mean never trying to change your husband. It just talks about how you go about it. Okay, wives, you have an idea about the culture in your home. You'd like to see some things change. They're in conjunction with the word of God. I think you can talk about those things, but to go about it by pushing and nagging and incessantly talking and bringing about your will and your desire in the home, that's not what God's called you to. He's called you to speak your peace 
do that so respectfully, be honest and be bold, but to not try to bring about culture change by pushing and nagging and incessant pushing. Quietness, right? Deferring to your husband's lead. Submission does not mean that a wife gets her spiritual strength from her husband. Doesn't mean that. How can the first Peter three wife get her spiritual strength from her husband who doesn't believe, right? Some of you think that when you got married, you married like this guy that was going to be like your resident Jesus, right? Your husband is not the Christ. There's only one Christ and he is not in this room in bodily form, right? He's risen. He's at the father's right hand right now and the spirit indwells in you. And so wives, man, husbands need to lead their wives, right? But they ought not to see their husbands as the only thing that's going to lead them spiritually for the husband of first Peter three can't help his wife. Also, submission does not mean acting out of fear. First Peter three wife is told in verse six to do what is right without fear of what their husbands might do. Do what is right without fear of what your husbands might do. See, let me put it this way. Oh, this isn't good. With husbands and wives, he has called husbands and wives to walk the way of Jesus. And Jesus is the means, model, and motivation for both husbands and wives. Outside of Jesus, you have ditches, too much and too little. A husband's ditch of too much is being overbearing, abrasive, being an idiot, and being a jerk, okay? That's the overbearing too much of being a husband. The too much, the too little is when you're passive, you don't involve yourself in your home, you're a pushover, you don't lead, right? And you place the burden of leadership on your wife's head instead of you taking it up on yourself and you sit in your lazy boy and watch sports all day long while your wife's trying to run around and try to be both husband and wife, okay? Those are your two ditches right there. Again, I wish I could preach next week's sermon, but anyways, I'd have to repent a ton and then preach it. So wives have the way of Jesus right here, okay? And so their too much is this, being that Proverbs wife, that's the continual drip of a gutter, the one where it says, hey, husband, it'd be better for you to live on the roof of your house than live with this gal, right? Just constant talking, doesn't shut up, keeps pushing, nagging, fighting, scraping, clawing. And if you don't agree with her or go her way, she's going to make your life a living hell, okay? That's too much. The too little of a wife is this, that you live in fear. And on the outside, it looks like submission, but inside it's fear. She doesn't talk back. She doesn't talk at all. She doesn't even, she has fear to even go against her husband or offer a different way or even disagree because she's afraid of what her husband might do. That is not submission and it's not respect. You know what it is? It's worship. When you value the opinion of anybody or anything over and above God, you worship that thing. And some wives are in some situations and in marriage cultures where they fear their husbands. And you know what? Some of the husbands are glad for that. They like it that way. You're a fool, okay? And we'll deal with you next week. But anyways, <clears throat> you know what? I, I, I tend to do that sometimes. And I never repent of that. And I have proclivity to that. And the way of Jesus teaches me different and forgives me for my sin in those ways. But when you have a wife who's fearful of her husband, that is not submission. That's unhealthy. Out of joy, Jesus went to the cross, not out of fear, not out of fear. Next one is this. Submission does not mean that wives have to be silent. First Peter 3 wife is told to not try to win her husband with the use of words, but with the power of the gospel seen in her transformed lives. It never says for her not to talk. Furthermore, if Jesus is our model for submission, what do we see Jesus doing in the Garden of Gethsemane? 
If the cross is the, is, is the main model for submission, what do we see Jesus doing in the garden of Gethsemane? He comes to his father and says this, Father, I'm having a hard time with the cross. If there's any way that this cup can pass for me, if there's any way I cannot, if we can go about the redemption of the world in any different way, let it be. But then he says this, nevertheless, your will be done and not mine. Wives ought to have space to speak boldly, to speak clearly, to share, to talk, to have vision for their home, to have vision for their world, to have vision for their kids and vision for their husband and vision for their family. And if a husband doesn't listen to his wife, a little bit later on in 1 Peter 3, it says, if you don't treat your wife like a co-heir, your prayers are hindered. God's not going to listen to your prayers if you don't treat your wife like a co-equal with you. If you treat your wife as a second-class citizen, not as a co-heir, God's not going to hear your prayers. He's going to reject you. So it doesn't mean that we don't speak. And if Jesus is the model, we see that he spoke. He shared his heart. He even shared some of, some of his frustrations and struggles. Submission does not mean that wives submit to all men, right? What does it say here? Likewise, wives be submissive to what? Your own husbands. This is in the context of marriage. If anyone thinks that like all men are like across the board, they're the leaders and wives and women ought to submit everywhere to men. That's stupid, okay? That is not what the Bible says, okay? I've been saying dumb and stupid a lot. (laughs) If you teach your kids not to say those words, I apologize. Okay. Um, so yeah, submission does not mean that wives are to be submissive to all men. It, it's, it's, it, it's in the context of a marriage. And, and lastly, I just want to say this submission does not mean that wives are degraded. <clears throat> wives have been lured into believing that submission somehow gives them a second class status. We need to see that Jesus being co-equal and co-eternal with the father joyfully submitted to the father. It was Christ's glory to submit to his father's plan of redemption for his children It was a wife's glory to submit to God's plan of provision and protection for her life and her role in marriage. See, God has given wives a beautiful place to follow the leadership of their husbands. And they can have this covering there, knowing that they're trusting that in my submission, that I'm trusting God's ordained plan. And furthermore, in my non-nagging and non-pushing and my non-abrasiveness, I'm really truly trusting you, God, to have your way in my life and in my marriage. Okay, lastly, last thing, the mission of submission. So this last part we see here, it says that, that, we're to, <clears throat> that wives are supposed to be subject, submissive, deferring, quietness of spirit, right? To have this kind of like, uh, um, uh, play the helper, play the, play, the, play the second chair and defer to their husband's leadership. So that even if some don't obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Notice that Peter is saying that this is across the board. The role that wives ought to play in marriage is one of servant submission. Husband is that of servant leader. Wife is that of servant uh, submission. Now that's across the board. Now some gals would say this. Well, if my wife, if my husband's respectable, then I'll respect him. If he leads, then I'll follow. Right? And if he's somebody that I can go along with, then I will. But if he's not, then no thanks. If this guy's an idiot, doesn't lead right? And he's not serving me, then I'm going to buck up against his authority. I'm not going to take this. And certainly, right, there's moments where we can talk about that. But it says here in this passage that wives ought to be subject to their own husbands, even those who don't know God, even those who are ungodly and unjust. But let me ask this question. What is the connection between you ditching 
you're fighting, clawing, scraping, and manipulating in your marriage to get your own way, and a quiet approach to deferring to his leadership and trusting his head above him, what's the connection there between trusting God and the mission of God? And it's this. Wives, hear this. And I want to read this because I kind of work a little carefully on this. Nuance, you know? And all your non-manipulation and all your non-arguing and all your non-nagging In your quietness and softness and respect in the following of your husband, even those who don't yet trust in Jesus, you are displaying a strong faith in God. How? When we say that we're trusting in God, right? Just in general across the board, and even wives, when you say that you're trusting God in the wife of your husband, or you say you're trusting God in any life scenario, but then you fight, claw, scrape, scheme, yell, and push back, to get the desired outcome that you want, you are not trusting God. You are trusting your own resources. You are trusting your own power to manipulate a situation and to manipulate a scenario. And in Bible study, when you're asked about your difficult circumstance, you say, I'm giving it up to God, but that you push and push and nag and nag and you're incessant and you keep going. Really what happens is a lot of ladies that I know are Better at arguing than husbands, right? And guys, I'm just like, man, you win. Like, I give up. Like, sure, we'll do that, right? And you win. You dominate. And you get what you want in the moment, but you have lost your husband in the process. And you just dominated him. And ladies, let me ask you, any husband that you can dominate and push around and get your will, do you really respect him? No. What do you really want? You want a man you can respect, You want a man you can follow. You want a man you can lead. And so some husbands need a swift kick in the pants because they're not leading. But some wives need to let their husbands lead. And they don't. And they keep going and don't stop. When in respect and gentleness we die to forcing change in our husbands, we display that we are truly trusting God's will to be done. I did this uh, like premarital counseling thing this one time. It was like a seminar or whatever. And I got done talking about some stuff. And this gal comes up to me. She comes rushing. Her husband's kind of like walking down like this, right? And she's like, all right, here's the deal. I love God. He doesn't fix him. (laughs) This guy's like just head hung like this, right? And you could tell like she says lots of words, you know? So I'm just like feeling bad for this guy, right? I'm like... Dude, I'm in your corner right now. And so I'm like, <clears throat> so, so let me ask you something. Um, you guys got married. Um, did he love God when you guys got married? No, you know, like, you know, God opened my eyes later to the gospel and, and this and that. Or, you know, and I knew I shouldn't, you know, marry him, but, you know, I did. Oh, okay, cool. So uh, let me get this straight. You married him and he wasn't a Christian. And now you're shaming and guilting him to love God, even though you knew who he was when you married him. And all of a sudden she was like this. And I felt a little bold in this, right? Because she's like, she's putting me and him on blast. And I'm like, all right, cool. Like, here we go. And all of a sudden her head kind of goes down like this. And he's like, he pops his head up like this. (laughs) He's like, oh man, pastor's got my back. You know, like, sweet. I like this guy. And I just tried, I just tried telling her like, Man, like, talk to me about, talk to me, okay, you want him to love God. How have you gone about doing this? Man, I keep pushing for us to do devotions and for this, and I keep telling him that we need to do this, and we need to do that, and you need to come to church, you need to come to this, and you need to come to that. Oh, okay, cool. Um, how's that working out for you? 
well, he's come to me to some things, but man, he really doesn't, he doesn't want to do it in his heart. That's because you can't change his heart. You can't bring about what only God can bring about in a husband's heart by his grace with your words. You can't save anyone, especially him. And when we stop nagging and pushing our unbelieving husbands, or even our husbands who have slipped into some seasons of maybe where they're not leading and they need a kick in the pants, if you try to give them that kick in the pants, it's not going to go well. Because what's going to happen is they're going to coalesce to your words and they're just going to go along with the program, but their hearts are not going to be involved. You need to stop the incessant nagging and pushing. And you need to go to the head of your husband and in quietness and in service and in love, the kind of service that Jesus displayed, you need to serve and do good to him and pray for him. And you watch God change those places where only he can change that you can't with your words. And and women, when you die to that, when you die to that, you are displaying the same kind of robust trust and submission that Jesus did on the cross. And it is beautiful and it is high and it is celebratory and it is awesome and it existed in Jesus. And you should be encouraged about that. And for all the husbands who in here are like, yes, thank you. Thank you for telling them to shut up and stop asking me to come to church and their dumb small group. I don't want to go. Thank you. Yes, well, I got something for you, bro. Okay? Your wife knows the freedom and forgiveness found in Jesus. And she doesn't want you when your life ends to be the kindling in God's wrath. Because there is a God. And he has a heart of love. But he's going to have a heart of justice and judgment to those who don't submit to his son and trust in him one day. And faith, faith, trust, seeing a need for Christ is the only thing that makes you go from kindling to a kid of God. And your wife knows that freedom. And she doesn't want you there. She wants you to know God as Savior. And yeah, she might go about it the wrong way. And she might sometimes push and nag. And you might be able to one day throw this verse over, over her head. And you might be right. But you need to wake up and see that she loves you. And she is loving you in the best way that she knows how. So instead of being a tough guy, maybe you can just stop and pause and think and notice the beauty and the love in your wife and trying to love you in the best way she knows how. And maybe you can see that in your wife and say, you know what? Maybe there might be something to this God. And ditch your pride and ditch your arrogance. And maybe ask her a few questions about this God that she loves. Maybe ask her a few questions about this cross that she sings of. And maybe you might discover the greatest and most amazing display of love this world has ever seen and the only savior that God has given to a hell-bent world of which you are a part of. So that's my encouragement for you, husbands. Moms, on Mother's Day, it's the same thing. Moms, you're in your, husband, you're in your, you're in your homes as missionaries. And some of your husbands need to know God. Kids need to know God too. And on Mother's Day, I just want to remind us, a real quick passage in 2 Timothy. Go ahead and throw it up. Zach, thanks, man. Right? 2 Timothy, Paul talks about a young pastor named Timothy. He talks about his faith. And he gets to this idea of where his faith came from. 
says this. I'm reminded of your, of your sincere faith, Timothy, pastor. Where'd this faith come from? Where'd Timothy's faith begin? A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice. And now I'm sure it dwells in you as well. No mention in Timothy's story of a father, but two ladies, two ladies, women, wives, moms. In your home, you are nothing short than beautiful missionaries like Jesus. And if you think for a second that your role is anything less than that, please repent and come to see that what God has called you to in your home is awesome and it's beautiful. We worship Jesus for it every single week. And that by your good deeds, by your servanthood, and maybe with your kids, probably a few more words are going to be required than with your husbands, right? And in all your doing, and all your serving, and all your submission, and all your helping, and all your being like Jesus in your home, you are trusting and submitting to God. Trust his sovereignty. He will have his way in your husband. He will have his way in your kids. And you get the beautiful freedom of not throwing the weight of that burden on your shoulders. So you can die to your nagging. You can die to your pushing. You can die to your manipulation. You can die to all that. And you can trust in the beautiful role that God has called you to in marriage and trust God to have his way in your life and in your home with your husband and with your kids and with you. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for this word. Thank you for just loving us. And um, I pray that these next few weeks will just produce a lot of just fruit in our lives and in our marriages. I pray for husbands and wives to, to go home later on and to have good conversations. I pray that you might just some marriages right now, they're just stuck in paralysis and just hurting right now. I pray that you would just, and God, just be good to us. I'm asking you for the bread of just healthy, gospel-glorifying marriages where husbands lead like Jesus and wives help and submit like Jesus and they bear fruit. I'm asking you for the bread of that and I'm trusting that you will not give me a stone and you will not give me a snake. Give me the bread. Give us, give our family, give the Cedar Lake campus the gift of that. Help some marriages that are hurting. Pray for good, awesome conversations later on and in this month. We love you. Jesus, thank you for being the submissive savior who didn't lash back and take vengeance upon himself and defeat his enemies, but you willingly submitted yourself to the cross to be defeated by your enemies so that you can win the war over sin, Satan, and death and so we can be reconciled back to you. Jesus, we love you. Amen.